I invite that you turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 9. The book of Acts, we're studying about this idea of a movement of discipleship communities, or what we know, the church. We're studying this to see how God changed the world through Jesus Christ, through his disciples, with the prayer, with the hope of, can God do that here? Can we see discipleship communities start in Nightdale, in East Raleigh, that would reproduce to the third generation? To see a movement continue that God is working places around this world. And so, as I study this, I hope you study it with a very practical, very personal uh, study of, can I put this in my life? Can I see this happen in my life? And, and it's amazing when you look at the, the study of history and ask the question, why and how on earth did the church come to existence to begin with? Uh, it is a testimony to the power of God. There have been forces, as we have seen, all throughout history that has tried and tried to stamp out anyone who followed Jesus Christ. Uh, the people who started were not powerful people. Yeah, you had uh, the emperor eventually, Constantine, but before that you had uh, hundreds of years of just normal people. And within just a few decades, it takes over the most powerful empire our history has known. How did that happen? We're going to look at it and see how it was done in a dynamic, powerful, personal conversion of an individual. It was not just joining a club. It was not just adopting some external behavior of moral code. But it was an internal, thorough conversion of one person who uh, had certain traits to a completely different person And when a dynamic conversion takes place, people can't help but watch and see and be challenged through the life of one person. So we're going to see in Acts 9 that one life matters. Sometimes when I talk about starting discipleship communities that will reproduce the third generation, you think to yourself, that's great for everyone else. I can't see how I can be a part of that. You need to know from reading today's uh, passage in Acts 9 that God can use one person, can use you to see the reproduction of churches, of discipleship communities that will continue throughout. He will and wants to use even one person to do that. And the question always comes, will you be that one person? Will you be that one? So we're going to look at the life of Saul, how he's converted in Acts chapter 9, looking at verses 1 through 19, and really see how a movement, this discipleship community movement, moves upon a person. Sometimes we use vernacular that describes us receiving Christ. One of the things that, you, that we learn from Scripture is that Christ is receiving you. Christ is the one calling out to you. It's not like we're standing in front of some kind of sports team and says, yeah, I'll take Jesus and get him on my side. That's sometimes that, that language of receiving Jesus kind of has that image of, yeah, I'll pick him. I'll, I'll, I want him on my team. And that's really not at all what Scripture is teaching. It is an effort of God 
calling you out to follow him. And we're going to see that in Acts 9. And so uh, in honor of this being God's word, let's stand as we read this together. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. We're starting to see the progression of the movement moving away from Jerusalem to Samaria. And now we've seen the first experience to go to the Ethiopian eunuch through Philip. And so it's starting to cross major barriers. And then we have this story in Acts 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, And enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. You notice, there's no response here from Saul. He doesn't say, yes. He just, here's the command, do it. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul arose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days... He was without sight and neither ate nor drunk. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who will call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. (laughs) Is that persuading you? (laughs) So Ananias departed and entered the house. Laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and took food, taking food, he was strengthened. You may be seated. So I understand that there's several different audiences here. There are perhaps many of you who have experienced a conversion of your soul. You've experienced God calling you out. And so this perhaps may be a reminder to you and maybe an explanation if you've not thought about it to how God worked in bringing you to himself. But there's also a word to you who have been converted You have responsibilities in this story. Then there are others of you who have not been converted. You have not known the experience of God. And and perhaps maybe you're here because your parents made you or because some friend brought you here and you're just kind of, you know, trying to please them for a little bit. 
Uh, and you think, well, you know, I'm kind of interested, but I'm not really interested in being a Paul. But I would just challenge you, Paul, as we learn in history and learn in Scripture, was a man of great ability, great confidence. He learned to trust in God and say that even when he had little He found the secret of contentment that he could go before a king and boldly proclaim what he believed. He was a man of conviction to the point where God used him to change the world and was a man of of great influence, not because of his money, but because he was held by a few truths. And I just thought, you know, maybe God wants you to be someone who will make a difference in this world. That is done when you are persuaded and held by a few powerful truths. I pray that may become true of you. And so as we read this, let's go through the text and just kind of explain the way here. So we start with verse 1. Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples. Now, this isn't the first time we've seen Saul. In fact, we've seen just a little glimpse of him. Luke includes him as he writes Acts, as he talks about the stoning of Stephen, as we read about that in Acts chapter uh, 6 and 7, how he has this powerful sermon as he's being stoned. And then there's this little glimpse uh, in in chapter, uh, end of chapter 7, of Saul coming in in chapter 8, sitting there approving of this execution of Stephen. So there's this little blip right there, and now it's kind of a continuation. Uh, we've seen Philip, Ethiopian eunuch. Now let's get back to this guy named Saul, because God's going to use him in a mighty way. And so as we see, he is progressing in his uh, violence against the church. Notice how it describes the people. He says he's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And then you see later on, a few verses down, it describes these people as people who are followers of the way, belonging to the way. The, the term Christians was not used back then until sometime in Antioch. That was the first place where that happened. And so what do you call these people? They're not quite Jews, though they're Jewish. Uh, what do we call them? They said they were just kind of making up names. Well, a disciple of Jesus, follower of Jesus. People of the way. Where did that come from? Well, Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And so they're emphasizing no longer the temple, but Jesus is the way to God. And so they have this nickname. Let me ask you this question. If there was no label called Christian, how would people call you based on what you say and what you do? Would there be a distinct title for you because you live distinctly in what you say and what you do? Sometimes we live under this label of Christian and we see it as a safe place because we have this label. They don't have such labels. They just, what do we call these people? They're, they're, They're unique. And I see distinct patterns in them. There's a group of them. They're growing. They're a problem. Let's call them people of the way. And so Saul is, is growing in his antagonism, uh, and now he's breathing threats of murder. And so he seeks authority from Caiaphas, the high priest, and, and Rome had given them authority to be able to do this. And so he sends letters to say, Let, let's go to Damascus. Evidently, there was a growing group of Jews who were following Jesus after the persecution in Jerusalem. They were spreading out to Damascus, which is about 160 miles away. And there was a, a large Jewish population. In fact, we find later on in, in, in AD 60, there was about 18,000 Jews that were killed in Damascus in the Roman War. 
Uh, so there's a large population of them, and, and they are growing in their influence as Christians. And, and Paul, and Saul as he's known here, hates it. Hates it. He despises it. And so, verse, as we keep on reading, we see as this story goes on with him journeying to Damascus. A light shines from heaven, and we get, for the first glimpse, Paul understands one of the very first things that happens when God converts a person. God pursues. God pursues his disciples. It's not us pursuing God first. God is the one who's pursuing us first. And we see it right here in the story of Saul. It kind of comes on him as we see a great light. This is the God's presence uh, in a very visible way. It's an exceeding light. In fact, the Bible tells us in Acts 22 and Acts 26 that it was midday. It was in the middle of the day and that this light shone brighter than the sun. All right? Uh, so you want to know what this is like, just stare at the sun and, uh, and uh, it's not quite that bright. And that will blind you on it. And so here this great light is, is going in his life and he falls to the ground. But there's something about what God says that brings us some, some evidence that God had always been pursuing him and that this is kind of a culminating moment for Saul. And so he fell to the ground and he heard this, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That was an Aramaic, which was the heart language of Saul. It, it was not Greek. It was not Latin. It was Aramaic. God knows your language. And he knows how to speak to you in a way that you understand. He's doing that with Saul. And you know what? He knows your name. God knows your name. He is aware of Saul. He calls him by his name. And he says, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? Listen, if a great light is shining in the middle of the day that's greater than the sun, and you hear a voice calling out, it's okay to call him Lord. (laughs) All right? He doesn't know who this is, but if that's happening... This is something unusual and greater than me. Lord, who are you? And something even more shocking than the great light is the answer that Saul gets. I'm Jesus. Jesus? This is the one that he has hated. He has despised this name. He is trying to eliminate people who bear this name. And wouldn't you know it if a voice doesn't come from heaven and says he's Jesus. This would have been the thing that was most disturbing to Saul right here. But then he has this interesting phrase. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now that may not mean much to us. It doesn't sound like fun. But a goad was something that shepherds would use, cattlemen would use, uh, with their sheep, their goats, the cows, and it was just basically a sharp stick. Poking them. Make sure they go the right way. And so this uh, errant cattle or sheep or goat is bucking up against it, and they're going to lose that battle. And so what God is saying is, you know, all along the way, this pricking this aggravating feeling, this heart pain, this irritation, this anger that you're feeling. Have you ever wondered what it is you're angry about or who you're angry with? 
who you're irritated with, you think it's Stephen. You think it's these disciples. But you need to understand that I am the one that has been speaking to you. And you're going to lose this battle because I'm talking. So, that tells us that something's happening in Saul's life when he witnesses Stephen's execution. Luke is the one that records that. He gets his information from Paul. Have you ever wondered why there's so much detail of Stephen's sermon given to us in the book of Acts? I mean, it is the longest recorded sermon that we've got in the New Testament. Right there in the book, longer uh, in details than, and even than the Sermon on the Mount. You've got this one of, of Stephen just goes on. Where do you get that information from? From Paul. Why do you think Paul remembered it so much? God was using it. And it was impressing in his heart, in his mind, and his reaction was just anger. Flat out anger. But it was angry, not at Stephen, but angry at God. You need to understand that when you are sharing the gospel with people and they respond with anger, with dismissing you, mocking you, shunning you, they're not shunning you mocking you they're lashing out against god and sometimes it's the very evidence of god working in their life is the anger and retaliation that comes i got a an email from one of our church members uh, just this past week and in it he just was asking for prayer he said to me Pastor, I'm having very severe opposition attack from some workmates due to my position as Christian. I've been called mental patient with, quote, perfect personality. Simply because I said I would not be involved in their schemes. Others said it's all cult. Supervisors told me to hold my head up and emotionally drained, although I've made it to be. Just the beginning. Put me in your prayers. That's one of our church members that just was wanting me to hear that, to to pray for him. I, and I hope that you would pray with this, this man in our church that's making a difference, speaking up. This is the type of thing that's happening and will happen. You will be called mental patient. You will be called crazy. You would be called, you, you've, you're just not smart. You're being dumb. You're being duped. And people like you need to be eliminated. For, I hope you are prepared for the day and time that we are now in where if you follow the Bible and teach the Bible and believe what Jesus teaches in the Bible, you will no longer be referred to as honorable in our society or as good in our society. It used to be a good thing if you're a Christian. But now, if that's what you believe, uh, what the Bible teaches, what Jesus says, you will become a scourge, a bane, an irritation to America. That's, that's happening. It will happen. And so here Saul is responding to this and, and he's revealing that it is God who is working in his life. I, I can remember this feeling in my own heart and life and I used to think it was just, I, I don't, I'm just confused. And that was just the way I described it. I'm just confused. Sometimes I feel very, very miserable. I will tell you that for the two years before following Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord, I was probably one of the most sullen teenagers around. I was unhappy. Nothing could make me happy. And, and you could have chalked it up, well, he's just being a teenager. 
maybe. But what was really going on in my heart was that I was not happy because God was not allowing me to be happy. Because I was not following him and it was bothering me. And here's what I told myself. You know what? I'm just going to push this off, push this off, push this off until maybe I get married and have children. Because then it seems profitable to me to follow Christ then. But let me have my 20s. Let me have my teen years to do what I want to do. But I was one of the most miserable times of my life was during this period. Here Saul was irritable. It is the pursuit of God that's going on. So what happens when he hears this voice, he is recognizing that it is God who is working. When you realize that, that is a major moment of the Spirit's work in your life, that it is God. That was what happened to me in 1989 when I realized it's not just me. It's not these crazy thoughts that I'm having. It's not just these doubts I'm feeling. It is actually God speaking to me. And at that moment, when I realized God speaking, I had a major decision that was in front of me. And I could not dismiss it because I thought it was just myself or just my friends or, or just my parents talking. It was God that was speaking to me. And so that's this moment that Saul realizes, oh, that's you. And it just, I want you to catch something. Who does Jesus identify with? Who does he say he's persecuting? When Saul is persecuting followers of Jesus, Jesus sees it as attacking himself. He identifies with God's people. He calls the church himself this is my body people think that sometimes you know i don't really need to go to church because you know they're just a bunch of hypocrites anyway so a couple thoughts there you must be better than the church i guess you are better than the people that come to church you're not a hypocrite. You're better. If you are too good for the church, you're too good for Christ. The church is not a collection of people who have it all together. They're a collection of people who sees that God can put them together. And that's their hope. That's their plea. And listen, church... We do the world a great disservice if we are presenting ourselves to the world as we've got it together. We're not doing any favors when we are not being honest with the people around us. Don't present yourselves as you got it together because you don't. I don't. You know that, right? Yes, I'm a pastor, but I don't have it together. I struggle. I struggle with what it means to pursue Christ more than myself. The virtue of me talking right here is not because I'm doing it better than you. I'm here because God has called me here. That's it. Is this the image we're presenting to the community? It's important that folks understand that it's not that you have a great life, but that you have a great Savior. We don't have to be super in our life because we have a super Christ. 
And that's what we hold on to. And so here, when you attack the church, you're actually attacking Christ, according to Jesus here. So he says, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And so notice Paul's reaction. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? You know what he's just doing right here? God, I'm saying yes. Whatever you tell me to do, I'm... And listen, do you know that's what it means to follow Christ? To make Jesus your Savior and Lord, when you're baptized, you are simply saying, I'm saying yes to God. And every question, every challenge that he comes my way, I will commit by God's strength and his grace, I will put yes on the table and wait for whatever he tells me to do. So, so Paul is saying, all right, what do you want me to do? Jesus starts off real easy. He says, well, let's start off by you just going to the city. Yeah, I know it's the city that you were going to go and ran up all my Christians. Yes, I know they know you've got letters. You just go into that city where they already know about you, where they're already fearful of you. You go there and just wait. I'll tell you what to do next. Now, it has this little interesting part of the people around him could hear, could see, uh, and we learn later that they could hear a voice, but they didn't understand the speech. Why is that given? To let us know that Paul was not just delusional. There was others witnessing what had happened. As Paul later on tells his testimony, he says, you know, there's some other guys that can testify what had happened on that day. And so we're going to find something else that happens. Not only does God pursue his disciple. And a part of the key to that is recognize that it's God who's working in our life. Then we see that God opens up our eyes to know that we are blind. And that we can see a Savior. You notice how it happens here. Then Saul rose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. He was blinded because he saw too much light. The exceeding light blinded him. This is something very physically that was happening, symbolic to Saul of his spiritual condition. What makes us blind? Have you, have you ever learned something about yourself that you didn't know before? Raise your hand if that's true. Have you ever learned something about yourself that you did not know before? I hope, I hope you have. Okay? If you ever have, could it be possible that as you sit here right now, that you may learn something in the future about yourself that you don't yet believe or know now? So could you, knowing that, say and describe yourself as blind? If, if the first two are true, then we have to come to the conclusion that I'm blind to some things. And in our blinded state, we always must be very careful of the judgment we mete out on someone else. All right? As well as the judgment we give to ourselves. So what made Paul blind? There's a couple things that make us blind and and made Saul blind. Saul was blind uh, to his need for God because of his works. The law. He was a Pharisee. And so he had 
the first five books memorized. He described himself as the 600 commands that they broke down the God's law into. He described himself as flawless. That's pretty impressive. The thing is that often happens is as we learn what God wants of us and we start doing those things that God wants of us, one of the dangers is that as we start doing those things, we start trusting in those things that we've done to make sure that we're right with God. Oh, God wants me to pray. Okay, well, I will pray. God wants me to know the Bible. I will study the Bible. Oh, he wants me to memorize. I will memorize. He wants me to do. Okay, I will do. I will, I will uh, make sure I tell honesty. I won't lie. I will uh, not get drunk and lose control of my body. I will try to go to church. And I will do these things. The problem with that is the danger is we start trusting in those things and we lose the need for God's grace. Could it be that God allows struggle in our life continually so that you will learn the greatest treasure of depending on Christ? Have you ever wondered why it is that you have that sin that keeps on coming back? One of the benefits, you won't hear me say this much, but one of the benefits is that you stay dependent on Christ. You stay dependent on God's grace. That is the greatest need that we've got. Here Saul was, he was no longer dependent or never was dependent on God's grace. He was taught the law, and so let's do it. Listen, a religious person can be one of the meanest persons around. Just look at Saul. Look at Saul. Be careful that in your desire to do what's right and trust in what's right, that you let things go like loving people. Because after all, you've got it memorized. You give to the church and you don't lie. Well, there are others of us who are blind, not because of the law, but because of our own law. We are the ones who can look at a group of people in a church or in other churches and say, you know what, they don't even do it right. At least, at least I live by my own code. My one code is that I will not live with hypocrisy. And so we will die and go to death saying, I am better than the people of church. Because I've got my own code. How is that different? All that's different is the laws have changed. From the law that you see in the Bible versus your own law. You're trusting in your own law. We can be blind because of our law. We can be blind because our desire to do what we want to do and not obey God. I want to have fun. You know, people talk about sin is not fun. Really? I'm not too sure there is a season where it can be fun. But here's one of the things, is we start doing it and we, and we enjoy it and we see some, some benefits that come from it, but then what we don't get, we, we get blind to, is realizing the repercussions of it. We don't see one broken relationship in our heart after another and that our memories are nothing but memories of broken relationships. We can't see that initially. We can't see the fact that the things that we go to uh, for enjoyment are the very things that can kill us and rob us of fun. We can't see it. We become blind to that. And so Saul is realizing this, and, and God is opening up his eyes. And so, listen, God saves you, and one of the ways he converts you is to open up your eyes to see your need for a Savior. And he will do it by breaking the thing you worship. 
before you worship God. We all worship, you know, you know you all worship stuff. We all worship. We are constantly making various idols to worship. And what God will do is he will say, okay, I'll allow you to go down that way and then show you the bankrupt aspect of that which you're living for. One of the things we may have to wait, someone you're praying for to be converted, you may pray, God, will you break and show them the broken nature of their idol? Here, he does that with Saul and says, look, that which you live for, that which you think makes you righteous, you're actually working against me. So he opens up his eyes. And so then we, we see how this happens. They led him by hand and brought him to Damascus, and he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. To him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. This is the third lesson I want to bring to you about how God converts people. God pursues his disciples, haunts them, convicts them of the sin. God opens up their eyes so they see a need for a Savior. These tells us how to pray. But the third thing that God will do and has done is that God will use his people as his mouthpiece. He brings in this man named Ananias. We don't really know much about him. You don't really hear much about him after this. It just comes into the story a couple times. And it basically says to Ananias, I want you to go and I want you to share the gospel. I want to use you so that he will be healed. You will pray for him so that he'll be healed. And you will pray for him that he'll receive the Spirit of God. Thereby he can be my follower. Now, why did it seems like while Jesus was talking to him that Jesus could have done that, don't you think? I mean, while you're talking... Why you blinded him, why he's there uh, saying Lord to you, why don't you just go ahead and tell him, explain to him the gospel. Explain to him how he died for you and rose again. And just say, you know, Jesus, couldn't you have led him in a prayer of salvation? He didn't though, did he? Why? He had opportunity. The only reason I can come to terms with is that he just wanted to use his people he wants to use if you are saying that you're converted you've got the power of god working in your life if you if that's you god wants to use you to be the mouthpiece of his gospel so here's ananias there's there's two people that we see use one stephen Stephen, what kind of person does God use as his mouthpiece? He uses Stephen. We've talked about him already. But what was the moment that changed, that radicalized Saul? What radicalized Saul? Was it not Stephen, his stoning, his looking to Jesus, his forgiving those who were stoning him, whose life drained right in front of his eyes, that moment when a disciple had his life falling apart around him and he looks to Jesus. Listen, listen, you want to make a difference? You want to change someone's life? You want to be a mouthpiece for God and see them come to know the Lord? It may be that God puts you in a place where your whole life falls apart and all you can do is see Jesus. That was the moment that radicalized Saul where he could, could not deny that there's something going on that if I don't stop this, this is going to take over the world. 
You know how God grows his church? By taking his children and letting them be led as lambs to the slaughter who trust in a love that no death No power on this earth can separate them from. And they go with their knees to the beach sand and the head down, calling on the names of Jesus. I'm praying that some of those hooded, black-figured people would be but saws and they don't know it yet. That's how God has always worked. Ever since Jesus died on the cross, He said, I want you to come after me. I've got a mission to take this and grow the church. And there is suffering yet to be done. There's suffering lacking. You notice how he describes Saul to Ananias. We see Stephen, someone who looked to Jesus when their life falls apart. apart. And Ananias was someone who desired to obey Jesus more than feared the dangers. Did Ananias have fear? Well, you read the text. You tell me. He says, Ananias... Here I am, Lord, just like Saul, my yes is on the table. Whatever you call, here I am. Some of you need to pray that this morning. Here I am. Whatever you may be saying, I'm going to say yes to. Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, rise, go to the street called Straight. Okay, I know where that is. I can do that. Inquire at the house of Judas. Okay, I can do that. For one Saul called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying, and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, um, Lord, I've heard from many about this man. How much harm he has done to the saints of Jerusalem? And here... He has authority. I've heard he has authority from the chief beast to bind all who call on your name. Do you think he was afraid? That sounds like fear to me. It's kind of like he's telling God, hey, God, you know about him? (laughs) Let me give you an update. It's kind of like God saying, why don't you go to Egypt and... Maybe venture over to Libya, and there's some guys, you'll recognize them, they've got black stuff on. They have a little black flag. I've told them, that they've had a vision though. And they said a man named Trey's coming. <laughs> or Jeanette. Or Angie. I've told them, they're coming. Talk about throwing you under the bus. <laughs> what do you do when God throws you under the bus? He's already said, I'll let the secret out of the bag. He knows you're coming. Was he afraid? Yeah. You see, following Jesus doesn't mean that you don't have fears. But following Jesus means that you take those fears and say, Jesus, I'm going to trust you with these fears. I will obey you more than my fears. And here's Ananias. (laughs) So, okay. But the Lord said to him, he, it's like he didn't give him another chance to argue. But the Lord said to him, go. For he is a chosen vessel. I know what I'm doing. I've appointed him. I've set him apart for a task. Now, notice this. I, I, this caught my attention. 
He is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles. And this is a new thing for the church. So far we got the Ethiopian eunuch, and he's the only one that's a Gentile that, that this is going on. This is a new thing. He said, I've appointed him to send him to the Gentiles. I'm sending him to the kings. I'm sending him to the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Does that get your attention? What if... At the moment of conviction, where God is telling you your need for a Savior, and you are saying, okay, Lord, I'm hearing, I recognize this from you. And God says, well, by the way, when I tell you to follow me, I'm going to take you down the roads of the valley of shadow of death, and you will suffer many things. (laughs) What would your response be to that? Okay, God, that's me. I'm your huckleberry. That's what he's doing. Listen, Jesus has done that already to you. He has already said it to you. He said, if if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to take up your cross, deny yourself, and come after me. That's what it means, my disciple. He has written it for you in black and white. He has told you. Listen, for us to follow Jesus... Sometimes we think it's the extreme thing to die for your faith. Listen, that is the beginning of our faith. Is it not to say that when you're baptized, you go into the water and say, I'm just as Jesus died, I died. And as I come up out of the water, it is to identify with his resurrection. Isn't that how you began? There's a reason we're baptized. As a reason you're submersed in the water is a picture, a statement of Jesus to the world, to yourself. I died to myself. And whatever measure of death Jesus chooses to do, it's his doing. Whether it's a six-inch knife at your throat, to kerosene and fire, to cancer, to a car accident, And all the things and extremes in between. This thing about death. It's from the, it's it's 101. It's lesson 101 in following Jesus. For some reason, we've made it extra credit. If you really want to work hard, then you die. Jesus said, this is how you come into this. Why on earth would Saul take that? Here's the offer. Doesn't tell us, but I can tell you a little bit what was in my heart and mind. When I was aware that God was convicting me, I I became keenly aware that there was a judgment day. You see, seeing things, it's not that you learn new things, but you realize the things you've always heard and a way you feel. You feel it. I'd always known there's a thing called Judgment Day. I always known there's a thing called death and that God was going to hold us accountable. I had known these things. I've heard them from since childhood. But there was a day and time on May 12, 1989, when I felt it. And I realized that it was my sin. It didn't really matter if I fooled mom or fooled dad or fooled the church. 
And I could not fool God. And then there was a moment where God was going to hold me account for my sin. And I felt it. And I realized that I had a choice because it was God speaking. That God could continue to speak and I could answer and I could have him speaking to me the rest of my life. But if I deny him now, the other alternative was I would spend the rest of my life not hearing from God. And listen, the thing that scared me most was not hearing from God the rest of my life. And maybe that was going on in Paul's life. Saul says, you know, if you're going to follow me, listen to me, I'm going to take you down places where there is suffering, there's going to be some bad things happening. But Saul may realize, if I don't say yes, then I will never hear from God again. And there is nothing that awaits me but a certain terrifying expectation of God's judgment on my life. And so, he hears this, Ananias is hearing this, and you remember what we learned last week? When God calls us to gospel conversations, he will always prepare the person you're talking to. He will prepare them, and that's what he confirms and reassures Ananias. Ananias, it's okay. Yeah, you, that's the right guy. He does this thing. Yes, he, he will do that, but I have prepared him. Join with me in that work. And so he goes. Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. (laughs) You know what that tells me? Ananias believed Jesus. You're not the persecutor anymore. You're my brother. Are we able, are we prepared to say to someone who was a former ISIS brother? That is the love that God has called us to. Do not, do not demonize them and say they are the enemy. Listen, the people behind the black mask is not the enemy. There is a Satanist spiritual force. He is the enemy. Please do not be deceived in this. Do not say in your mind they are the enemy. You've got to get rid of them. No, they are the one that God dies for. He loves them. And he wants them to know there may be a Saul in that bunch. Remember who the enemy is. Be prepared to call him brother. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has, as you come, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with your Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he received his sight at once. And he arose and was baptized. You just do that. You're obedient. One of the easiest marks of following Jesus is you just be baptized. Listen, if you can't be baptized here by people who love Jesus, how on earth are you going to talk to a Saul? Listen, this is basic. You just follow Jesus. Be baptized. You'll get wet, sure. Get a towel, you get dry, you get warm again, no big deal. You just obey Jesus because you obey him, you love him more than he fears you have. This is a simple one. It's not going to be the last thing that Jesus calls you to do that will produce fear. So when he received food, he was strengthened. Remember, he had been eating three days, or been three days without eating. He'd been fasting. And Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. 
So we read this story. It's still a powerful story. And God is still doing these things. No, you didn't have a blinding light, but I had the voice of God speaking in my heart. Did you have the voice of God speaking in your heart? Yes, I didn't get blinded by light, but I was blinded by my sin, and God showed me how I was blinded my, to my sin. Did God show you your need for, sin, for a Savior? Has God shown you how you have sin in your life? Why do we have a mission trip, which we'll have an interest meeting tonight at 5.30, to send students and those who go with them to Haiti? Because God still wants to use His people as mouthpieces. Yes, sometimes there's visions and sometimes there's dreams and there's supernatural ways, but he still brings his people to follow him. And the question I want to ask us, church, is our yes on the table? Do we say to God, here I am? Listen, I will listen to what you say. Will you do that? Jesus will never ask you to do anything more than what he has already done. One of the better pictures I've seen this week is someone drawing a picture, uh, a ministry worker in Egypt, drawing a picture of men, 21 men in those orange jumpsuits with the black hooded men behind them along the beach of the Mediterranean. And in front of them was a picture of Jesus carrying the cross. Jesus still leads us, does he not? And he bids for those who follow him, he bids them to come and die. Whether it's to die to your reputation at your work, or to have some kind of physical death. One of the greatest things I love for our students was for them to see that there is something worth living for, and something worth dying for. To experience it for themselves, whether here in Nightdale or some other third world country around the world. Just pray for that pray for that i want to end this by seeking your prayers seeking your giving if you'd like to support that haiti trip financially there'll be those who will need it contact the church office come out to the the meeting tonight for the haiti trip in march next month the 22nd i will leave to go to nepal with finney many of you remember finney for a pastor's conference Will you pray for that? Pray for God's working. That work in Nepal is for pastors and church planners to gather together in western Nepal where it's more communist. Pray for them. You have already supported. You've, you have, as a church, put $3,000 toward them, church planners, coming and going to this conference to be trained, equipped, and encouraged. You're already part of that. Be a part by prayer as well. And pray for Puga County. We will have interest meetings for those interested in going later on to be a part of that. But the final invitation is to say, every one of you, if you know Jesus as your Savior, say it by saying, here I am, Lord. In fact, I'm going to lead us in prayer. I'm going to ask you to pray with me at the end.